right, hello there. Welcome to The Libertarian Listener with me, Chris Wilkinson. On today's show, I've got with me Dan Lidicott, who is the founder of Independent Libertarians UK, which is a political association of libertarians in the United Kingdom who share pro-liberty values, let's say. And he's joining us today, and we're going to be talking firstly about the one-year anniversary of lockdown. So, <clears throat> the government has offered new guidance, uh, as today is March the 29th. They're now saying that outdoor gatherings, including in private gardens, of either six people, the rule of six, or two households will be allowed, making it easier for friends and families to meet outside. Outdoor sports facilities such as tennis and basketball courts and open-air swimming pools will also be allowed to reopen and people will be able to take part in formally organised outdoor sports. And my God, was I desperate to have those freedoms back above any of the others. The stay-at-home rule will end on the 29th of March, but many restrictions will remain in place. People should continue to work from home where they can minimise the number of journeys they make where possible, avoiding travel at the busiest times and routes. Travel abroad will continue to be prohibited other than for a small number of permitted reasons. So, with all of that, what are your thoughts on the first anniversary of the COVID restrictions? Where to begin, Chris? I mean, first of all, thanks for having me back. Um, it's good to be back uh, with you on your show. But where to begin? I suppose if you have bought everything the government has told us for the last year, hook, line and sinker, then what they're saying makes perfect sense to you. Um, but if you've been at all cynical, if you've done any kind of questioning of the either the motives or the strategy or the method, of or, or even the information on which strategy is based, if you've questioned any of those things, then you'll probably just feel a growing sense of frustration, which is certainly what I feel. Um, because really, this degree of lockdown does not need to exist at all right now. And it hasn't needed to exist since it became clear what was really happening with the COVID illness. Um, the problem is, of course, if you try and challenge this, people, you know, they're either trying to paint you as someone who doesn't believe it exists at all, um, or they paint you as someone who wants to kill granny, or all of these things. And it's it's pure propaganda that people are buying into. We have so much information now, so much data from all across the world of different um, uh, demographic makeups in different countries who've tried lockdowns of various kinds. Even in the US, you see different states have tried different approaches. And what is got to be absolutely obvious to people who are actually looking is that most of these interventions that governments are trying make absolutely no difference at all. Or at least if they do, it's it's marginal, so marginal it could be hidden, <laughs> hidden in the in the result. You know, on the one hand, Sweden is a pariah, even though their results were better than others. Um, and it's only now we see that their results were better than others, that they, that we're suddenly being told, oh, but that's because they have a much smaller population. Um, whereas before, they were the devil, you know, for taking the, the approach that they did. On the other hand, you can go to New Zealand, um, which has also a small population, who took a much more authoritarian approach than Sweden. And 
I'm hoping that people will start to see that actually it hasn't made a fat lot of difference across the world, whether they locked down and destroyed the economy or whether they didn't, whether they forced you to wear masks or whether they, they didn't. I think possibly one of the, the, the only things you can point to and say it made a difference when, was when they started getting us to wash our hands properly. <laughs> and you can, you can see that something happened there. But in all other cases, um, the patterns all over the place are following a similar, a similar uh, shape, and one might almost argue that it's seasonal. Now, I'm no expert in epidemiology and certainly not in COVID viruses or coronaviruses, sorry. But um, <clears throat> what, what is clear to me is that the government in the UK um, made a mistake by believing Professor Ferguson's um, dire threats in the first place. I mean, his threats were so, so way out from what actually happened. You know, th this isn't a guy who can't hit a barn, you know, with a shotgun. This is a guy who, who tries to hit the barn in front of him and ends up hitting a barn in another dimension. <laughs> that's, that's how inaccurate his results or his predictions were. And um, yet so much destructive policy has been built on the panic that followed from that and no one has admitted no one in in state authorities admitted that, that they were dire and that mistakes had been made for this this whole time i've been comparing i've been comparing this to the trolley problem which is a a famous and well worn out ethical sort of conundrum you know and the idea is that you have um a, there's a train coming down a track and a little way down ahead of the train, there's a point, there's a fork in the track. And um, depending on which track the train goes down, it's either going to hit 10 people who are tied to the track or one person who's tied to the track. And you can choose who lives and who dies by pulling the lever on the points. And this is the position that Boris Johnson and Dominic Rabb and, and you know Matt Hancock and all of those have been in. They've been in charge of this lever and they could decide who lived and who died. The problem was they didn't actually know who was on each track. They didn't know how many. They didn't know um, anything about them. But they were just spent the last year pulling the lever to and fro, hoping to look like they were doing something. And really, they should have just told people how to get off the track. All right. Instead of trying to decide, trying to pick the winners and the losers, because there have been far too many losers over this. Absolutely every death from COVID-19 is a tragedy. And absolutely every death from lockdown and the destructive policies is a tragedy. And some of these can be avoided, but not all of them. But we certainly didn't have to take the line of such authoritarian policies, which actually themselves caused harm. It's it's a well-known thing in the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, but they didn't. They had to be seen to be doing something, and in doing something, they've caused harm. And I believe we have yet to see the full effects of that, and possibly the harm they caused will be worse than the harm caused by the disease. We know now that the average age of someone dying with COVID is older than the average age of dying of anything at all. And so it's very clear now what the policy should have been. And yes, hindsight's a wonderful thing. We can all claim this now. Um, but now we can claim it. Let's act as though we can and that we can see what the results really show. And that is that lockdown can end yesterday. And perhaps people who are vulnerable and people who are very elderly need to keep shielding.
But apart from that, the rest of us can get on with our lives and the economy can pick back up and we can save some other lives that are being lost because of destructive policies. There you go. You can tell I feel strongly about that one. (laughs) (laughs) Which, of course, what you've just said there is very much in line with the uh, values of the Great Barrington Declaration, which has been signed by countless numbers of medical professionals and would, in fact, be there to safeguard those who are vulnerable and elderly while letting the rest of us just go on with our everyday lives. Yeah. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the Great Barrington Declaration didn't get the exposure that it really deserved because, yes, it was signed by many experts and health professionals, but it was also allowed to be signed by members of the general public as if to show support. And unfortunately, when it was publicised, lots of people were pointing to Joe Bloggs, painter and decorator who'd signed it, um, instead of pointing to the names that were scientifically significant. And, and you can add plenty of names. I mean, Dr. Mike Yaden's a great one to 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 refer to in all this because he's someone who really knows this in the industry of vaccination and the science of vaccination and he has a lot of concerns about the policies that are being enacted with the vaccine and of course as time is going on florida is now maskless and pretty much fully open texas is again maskless and pretty much fully open and i think the thing that's closest to home that would really grate with people if it had more media exposure is the case of the isle of man where people were happily sipping their pints in a pub with no social distancing no masks and no plastic barriers around the bar i mean at what points are people going to say that enough is enough with all of this? You know, stop the government interference, let this take its course and see where it goes, because... We, we have we have a few people who are willing to say that, of course, Chris, and, you know, people like Piers Morgan and various others, not Piers Morgan, Piers Corbyn, <laughs> maybe Piers <laughs> Morgan too, maybe, maybe him as well, but, but Piers Corbyn, um, you know, willing to stick their neck out um, on these issues... But unfortunately, they are very much in the minority. Uh, I mean, the people of Britain love to complain about their politicians, but for some bizarre reason this time, um, people are swallowing everything the Tories are throwing at them. Um, and and Labour, who ought to be in opposition, uh, have nothing to say because they're obviously in agreement, except keep doing what you're doing, Tories, but do it harder and more authoritarian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what else have they got to say? Because if they come out and say, oh, you're, you're totally wrong, you know, I, I think this is more political than it is scientific <laughs> at this point. Oh, absolutely, yeah. If we, to move it on just a bit, um, according to Worldometers, yesterday there were 3,862 new cases of COVID-19. That's a falling trend, and it's the lowest level since September the 17th. There's 401,034 active cases. Again, a falling trend and the lowest value since October the 18th. And 19 new deaths, just 19 new deaths, which is also a falling trend, the lowest since October the 5th. And you touched on it briefly earlier, but how much of this can be attributed to the supposed success of the vaccine when seasonal factors could be the cause behind the falling COVID rates we've seen since the end of January? Well, look, I mean, I'm sure seasonality has a lot to do with it. You know, even even people who are fairly ambivalent towards um, the political side of all this 
um, are pretty much resigned to the fact they'll probably have to have a COVID jab every year in the same way they have a flu jab every year for those who have them. I mean, I, I don't take the flu jab at all. Um, I, I'm not probably in the age bracket that requires it, and I feel in good health, so it's not something I do. And so, but and so in that regard, you know, if it is something that's going to be seasonal and it is something that's going to harm particularly elderly people or those with um, other uh, compromised immune systems or health issues, then it makes sense for them to do that and to have the vaccine or, or the jab, as it will probably become to know, you know, on a regular basis. But um, and, and I fully expect it to be seasonal. Um, but the, the, the concern for me is the fact that people are just believing what they're being told and so few are questioning it. I mean, what a, what a propaganda job has done on, a, done on us with clap for the NHS and all of that this time last year. It was, it was, it was completely manipulative in my view. And all the voices that had anything alternative to say were sidelined and, and shut down. I mean, I, <laughs> I think you are right to say that it is going to be a seasonal thing. And uh, if that is true, then it's never going to go away. And we've obviously got to live with this virus as and when we see cases of it. But how right are people to put their trust in this vaccine over their own natural immunity? And by the way, we're not talking about this from the perspective of being anti-vaxxers, despite what everybody would say about us. You know, it's now got to the point where simply making the choice not to have the vaccine is being anti-vax. Is that very dangerous as well? I think anything that stifles um, a free and open debate about this is dangerous. It's just wrong. And it, it really does reek of propaganda when that kind of thing happens. I mean, the, the, the reality is that if it is going to be seasonal, which it probably will be, um, are we going to lock down absolutely every autumn to spring? Are we really considering doing that? And the answer has to be no. And the the, the other thing it's frustrated me no end is the way, the, the dishonest way in which the figures have been presented to us, calling any anyone with a positive result of a now um, widely criticised test, um, a case. Really, I had a positive test using the PCR test, which amplifies the creator of the test, the inventor of the test, says you could, you could show someone had anything. If you ran it through enough amplification cycles, you could, you could show that someone was, you know, had a high dose of any, almost anything they were carrying, the tiniest... DNA fragment of, you might say. And so, you know, it was kind of later in the year when the WHO came out and said, oh, oh you want to reduce the number of cycles you're running on these PCR tests. And it just sort of made a lie of the whole thing. We knew that someone with a positive PCR wasn't a case. A case is someone who's ill and has to get medical treatment for it. And yet these this dishonest way of presenting the stats just it means we can't even have a sensible discussion about this. You know, unless you're willing to question and say, well, what do you really mean by a case? And how many of these cases actually went to hospital with, with that illness, you know, and all of these things. And so, yeah, it's a difficult question even to answer because you have to try and correct all the language surrounding it first. And of course, it's only now that they're rolling out home testing, which has been prohibited for the best part of a year. 
because, and I asked a question about this of our uh, Staffordshire County Health Officer or whatever it is, the, the Health Minister. Um, and he basically turned around and says, well, in order to prevent complications, it all has to be done, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's, done in one of our special testing facilities. And you kind of think, well, why is that? I mean, is it something to do with the amplification cycles and the way that they process the data? What makes home testing more unreliable in that sense? Surely it's the same kind of test. Um, I don't understand why that is. I don't know enough about it, and I'm not even sure that home testing is the right thing to do in any case. We don't test ourselves for the flu. We don't test ourselves for the common cold. We, we don't test ourselves for most contagious things which are common to the mortal experience. Um, and, and this hasn't shown to be the plague, all right? It isn't. And so I think it's just an unwarranted intrusion into private family life, to be honest. Hmm. Do you see any sort of long-term developments in the realms of medical diagnostics, both in the public sector and the private sector, as a result of this experience? Well, I, I can see that diagnostics is going to become a boom industry. <laughs> start buying shares now. Because they're only going to grow um, on the back of all this government money that's going to be thrown at it. Um, I can only hope that, yes, all that money then results in better technologies for it. But as we've already seen, the quality of the technology is irrelevant if people are going to be dishonest or fudge the figures. Yeah. So I've got a quote from Sky News here, which says the prime minister has admitted we don't know how strong our fortifications now are against a fresh COVID wave, while the chief medical officer has warned of a leaky wall of vaccine defence. Speaking at a Downing Street news conference on Monday, as people in England saw lockdown restrictions ease slightly, Boris Johnson urged the need for caution as COVID rules are lifted. That wave, in quotes, is still rising across the channel and it is inevitable as we advance on this roadmap, that there will be more infections and unavoidably more hospitalizations and sadly more deaths, he said. Now, if the vaccine is as successful as the government likes to say it is, and they've claimed that it's pretty much effective against all known variants of COVID-19, with now more than 55% of people having had their first dose, why is the fear yet again being ramped up? Is it to extend the period of restrictions further? And if it was to do with that, what could the motive possibly be? Wow. <laughs> well, you're dangling a, a little uh, worm there for me to, to bite, aren't you? I can tell. <laughs> look, look, look the, the whole point of this was about herd immunity, wasn't it, way back in the day? And, and there's so many ways you can get herd immunity. You can protect the vulnerable and allow those who are uh, strong and healthy and unlikely to be seriously ill from a disease to all catch it, um, develop an, an immunity, innate immunity, and then um, let everyone else come out. Because by and large, all the healthy people who have an immunity are blocking the spread of it. Um, that's one way of doing it. They, they hope that vaccination will do an equivalent job this time round. 
I hope they're right because we're all being forced to take that strategy, aren't we? They've pulled the lever. Where the train's going down this track. And therefore, um, whoever gets hit is going to get hit. And it will be the person who pulled the lever's fault. But we're all going along with it on that basis, aren't we? And so we've got to hope that the scientists are right about the vaccine and that somehow this herd immunity will come out of it. Um, I don't know enough about the science to really comment on whether that's valid or not. But I did, I did see something come across my radar, which I, I haven't had a chance to, to properly research. But one suggestion has been made that um, it's necessary to keep the hype, the fear, the emergency status going in order to keep rolling out the vaccines on their current basis. I don't know if you've heard anything about that, but um, apparently they, they have been released so quickly because of the emergency status we're under. And if we're not in that emergency status, they can't keep rolling it out. I don't know. It's it's one of those things that came across my radar that I've not had a chance to look into. Mm. It certainly seems plausible, though, because ultimately the one way that you would get people to take the vaccine is to sustain the crisis for as long as someone is unvaccinated. Um, to be honest, though, I think they're going to encounter very soon the wedge of resistance that is building against the uh, against taking the vaccine. What what kind of measures do you think that they would take uh, to coerce these people into taking it? We've already seen in care homes, for example, that it will now be made compulsory to take the vaccine. Could you see the vaccine becoming compulsory? Well, as with all of these things, it's divide and conquer. So they're not going to make it compulsory for everyone because there would be too big a backlash. And so they will slowly but surely single out specific groups um, to make it compulsory for. And care home people are the obvious manipulative choice, aren't they? Because they're the ones actually working face to face with the most vulnerable it's almost as if they admit by choosing them that they know that the really the only people who are going to die of this are the people in their in their 80s and so they they're starting there um and then who will it be next will it be school teachers will it be social workers will it be the police themselves um and it, it's the same approach they take in so many other areas where um they want to enforce a particular thing. They don't, they don't do it wholesale in that regard. They will pick on people until there's almost nobody left. And then everyone else will say, well, we've all had it. And, and so it becomes very difficult then to avoid. Um, I think it's a mistake. I don't think anyone should be forced to do it. I think if, if, if there is going to be policies on vaccination, it ought to come from the employers themselves. But even... Even that would be um, probably too easily coerced onto almost all of us one way or another. Um, that's kind of my take on it. I think it's quite sinister, um, particularly since, as Dr. Mike Yadam pointed out, we don't have any long-term data about this vaccine at all. We, we literally know nothing about the longer-term effects of it on, on individuals or even on its efficacy over a longer period. So... It's a pretty poor basis for coercing and, and making something mandatory. Um, it, and it's a, it's a terrible precedent when you think if they can make this mandatory, what else could be mandatory? 
Mm. And of course, it's not necessarily them as well, because we had, uh, in the time that the Libertarian Listener was off the air, we've had the rollout of the vaccine, and Pimlico Plumbers has now written it into their employment contracts that their contractors uh, now have to have the vaccine or else they will lose their jobs. Do you see that sort of coercion becoming more widespread, that it's not coming from the government, it's rather coming from businesses? Well, potentially so. And and I do have some concerns about that, but not as much as I do have concerns about if the government was enforcing it. Um, the, the fact is that if Pumdico plumbers put this in their contracts and then an employee becomes very ill or vaccine damaged, um, they'll have a case then to sue Pimlico plumbers. Um, whereas at the moment, you can't actually even sue the vaccine manufacturers um, <laughs> because they have immunity, but they could sue their employer if their employer insisted on it. Yeah, absolutely. If it, if it caused them harm. We've seen recently that Piers Morgan has walked out of Good Morning Britain. And it's probably fair to say that he's one of the very few sort of, not necessarily alternative, but he's a solidly right-wing voice uh, within a mainstream media that is perhaps biased against him. And the loss of that voice is surely going to tip the balance towards the left wing, I suppose. Do you think that it's a bad thing that he left in such circumstances, that he walked out over criticism that he faced over comments he made over Meghan Markle? I mean, this is a huge issue, and not just for Piers Morgan, but for the, the whole Western world in general. It, it, it's an issue of whether free speech is more important than not causing offence and and all of those things. Um, uh, and the reality is, um, actually, it is quite important not to cause offence, but it's also quite important to preserve free speech. You know, unfortunately, as libertarians, we find ourselves continually defending idiots and their freedom to say stupid things. And But, but the whole point of free speech is it is only free speech if... Um, it allows people to say stupid things. Otherwise, it's just it's just censorship, on, on, on a, and you're drawing the line in the sand in a different place. Um, regarding Piers Morgan, you know, he is a showman, of course. He's been in you know TV for a long time. He knows how to make an impression. So one, you know, I, I don't know how much of, of this is is just part of um, putting on the show, but. At the same time, um, he should be free to voice his opinions, whether you agree with them or not. Um, if he tells lies um, about people, then obviously that's a case for slander or libel, and he can be sued for that. But it's not for the government to say what people can, can't think or believe or say outside of that. Um, free speech is just so important, and it's not simply because everyone has the right to, to share their opinion, which of course they do. It, it's deeper than that, because if you say that people don't have that right, it then becomes a question of who decides what is allowed, who decides what opinions are permitted. And, and that is a much more sinister question, because you are basically picking your dictator, and you have to admit that that's what they are. 
You think we could be seeing him next to Andrew Neil and Nigel Farage on a new TV channel, perhaps? <laughs> well, people are talking about what they call a right-wing TV option, and uh, I got involved in an online discussion uh, in one forum where you know they were saying, would the addition of a right-wing TV station poison the debate? And I'm thinking, well, the fact that you're using the word poison means it already is. <laughs> right? <laughs> if you're saying right-wingers will poison it, then you've already sort of you're already poisoning it. But I also take issue with the idea of what is a right winger. Because to me, both right and left are authoritarian. You know, they're both trying to enforce their vision on everyone else using state coercion. And so for me, I'm, I see myself as a centrist, but one that believes in small government um, and local small governments at that, uh, and, and not at all authoritarian. So when left and right are mudslinging at each other, you know, over whether it's the te- you know whose news program is the best or whatever it's going to be, um, I just see authoritarians um, calling e- calling calling the kettle black. And, and what I'd really like to see is people actually believe in uh, individual freedom, in free speech, um, freedom of association, all of those things, and to accept the simple fact that you can't control and nor should you try the opinions and thoughts and beliefs of other people. Um, If you think someone's wrong, argue the point. Um, Show them to be wrong in a free and open debate in the public square. Make them look stupid if they're wrong, if you wish, um, for how wrong they are. Um, But it strikes me that if your aim is simply to silence them, actually, maybe your arguments aren't as good as you think they are. Maybe you're more afraid of how good theirs are. So let's avoid all of those sort of... um, innuendos that can be made about it and just retain our freedoms. You know, um, Rowan Atkinson, you know, famously spoke about the right to give offence. Now, personally, I, I don't I don't seek the right to give offence. I, I, I have the right to give offence, but I don't seek it because I don't try and offend people. That's not my my aim in life. You know, I, I, I quote uh, a, a colleague, a libertarian, I suppose, a fellow libertarian from across the water who said, I don't play my music loud because I don't want to encroach on my neighbours. And that's the approach I take, which is I'm just trying to get on with my life and live in peace with those around me. I'm not trying to force anyone to adopt my point of view. I just don't want to be forced to adopt their point of view. And free speech allows me to have and discuss my point of view without forcing it on anyone. You know, I might offer it to someone, I might explain it to someone, they can reject it. Fine, that's their choice. Um, and that's what free speech is all about. And some people, as with all things, will abuse that right and actually deliberately go out to offend them. Well, yeah, they can, all right, because of free speech. Uh, but I don't have to listen or care or quote them or give them any of my time. So people just have to be a bit more grown up about this. In the same way I was raised when I was a kid, you know, you if someone tried to tell the teacher on name calling when I was growing up, it was sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That was the rhyme. But now um, words themselves, because they uh, maybe contain something that you that was unexpected to you, are treated as though they were physical violence. But even more cynically, I think a lot of the time they're not. People just pretend that they're offended and they use them the, the state's coercion and the growing uh, sort of mob rule about what you can and can't say to punish their ideological opponents, not because they're actually offended, but because they've got enough sort of backing from from the powers that be or the mob um, 
to hurt their opponents because of what they say, not because of what they do, just because of what they say or what they think. And more cynically, I think that's what's really going on a lot of the time. No one's offended. You just want to get your own back. Are you quite surprised that the sort of precious nature of the royal family here in Britain, the, the idea that the establishment will not let any debate occur on whether or not we should have the Queen as the head of state, for example. Um, it, it does seem to me to be very much a closed issue. Is it wrong that it's a closed issue? Should we open it up to debate? I mean, republicanism, I'm sure, has many merits to it. Um, is it right that we should be able to hear these things? Or should we just keep the door closed? I think it's absolutely right we should be able to hear these things. But of course, to techni technically uh, to have this discussion might be treason. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps the death penalty still exists for that. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> or, or was it Tony Blair who changed it when it, you know, I, I won't go down that path. Okay. <laughs> I, I believe it's gone, yeah, because at the. Um... The Human Rights Act of 1998, I'm sure, put an end to the the <laughs> final bits of treason, uh, high treason, I think it was called. In some ways, that's useful, but I know there'll be many who will be potentially listening to this who are very strong royalists who would, you know, more than gladly pull the lever and on the trapdoor for, <laughs> for people who who even ask the question that you've asked. Of course, it should be a debate. If Brexit can be a referendum then so can um, any aspect of our constitution, surely, even if it is unwritten. In fact, the less written down it is, the more it should be up for debate until we get it written down in a sensible form. So myself, I have no particular issue with the monarchy. They are not um, overbearing nor meddlesome in our politics, all right? They are a constitutional head of state, but they don't particularly guide policy. So I'm not bothered, all right, whether they are there or whether they are not. Um, if I'd quite like there to be a republic because I know what a republic really is, and that is, is that we are our own sovereigns um, and we delegate our sovereignty to our representatives. At the moment, that's not the case. It's Her Majesty's Parliament and Her Majesty's Government and all of those things. Um, and it may seem like I'm splitting hairs there, but I think fundamentally on a level of, of the principles under which we operate, it matters. So if there was a referendum, I'd probably vote for a republic. I'd probably want to keep our uh, figurehead of states. You know, they can keep their lands and whatever, and, and we'll still call them king and queen and that kind of thing if we wish, you know, for the sake of tradition, which a lot of people um, like to keep. It wouldn't bother me one iota. Um, any more than it bothers me now, because it would have exactly the same effect on the way our government works. So the next thing I'm going to ask about is self-sustainability. And obviously, this is a somewhat important value for libertarian-minded people. And uh, this one is perhaps a bit more personal to you, because I've noticed that you on Facebook post about your adventures, setting up your own garden and things like that. Uh, in order to become self-sustainable. Is it quite a difficult process and what sort of things are involved in doing it? Well, I mean, yes, it's true that self-sustainability is important for libertarians, at least ones who really understand what it means, I think. Um, 
But it's also in it's certainly in the UK for most people it's not actually completely possible. And the reason for that is because of the price of land and the amount of land that any any normal person can get hold of. I'm a great fan of a, a man called John Seymour who wrote a number of books on the subject of self-sufficiency. And uh, one of his fantastic books explains how to run everything from a you know a garden plot up to a five-acre plot, you know, with your own cows and orchards and all of this kind of thing. And you know, in the planet, there's actually room for all of us to have that amount of land to, to do that on. But but from a libertarian perspective in the UK, I think it's also about things like um, keeping personal debts to an absolute minimum, uh, you know, living within your means, all the things that we would want of government, <laughs> we should also try and do on an individual basis. And I know some economists will argue, well, actually, no, Dan, because uh, at the moment, interest rates are really low. Now's the perfect time to have debt, et cetera. And then it will get inflated away and all of this. But I, I hate to tell you whether the interest rate's high or low, a debt is a debt and can be demanded of you. And then you have to pay it. And if you can't, then the things that you you obtained with that debt might be forfeits. That's not self-sustainable. You can't maintain your liberty on that basis. And so th there's a degree to which, um, you know, being fiscally prudent on an individual household level is perhaps even more important than how the chancellor is running the finances of the country, because that really matters to you. You know, maybe you have a reversal and uh, you lose your job or you have a long period of illness or whatever it is. And libertarians should be able to, well, should be seeking to try and manage all of that without going to government for help. But they're not going to be able to do that, are they? If, um, if they've taken no wise precautions and saved anything for a rainy day um, themselves. And, and I'll be honest, if libertarians did that, they would become even more frustrated with government every time it increases a tax, <laughs> more of those things, because they would they would genuinely be trying to be independent and stand on their own two feet. And then all of those things really matter more and more. If we continually hold in the back of our minds, oh, but then there's always the NHS or then there's always um, job seekers allowance or whatever it is, you know, um, universal credit, um, then we will never quite live up to our potential as libertarians or even as individuals. I suppose the, the thing that really beats people over the back regarding all of this is the fact that a large proportion of the UK workforce is on the furlough scheme. And of course, that means the government spending money it doesn't have simply to keep people paid. Uh, there's been a great loss of financial independence over the course of the past year. But in some ways, can you see that the furlough scheme is a good way for people to sort of resolve their debts as the savings ratio has gone up and people are not as economically active, I suppose? Uh, has it sort of put paid to some of the economic vices that people may have had? But potentially people are less keen on getting into, you know, personal consumer debt. That's a good thing. Um as for furlough, um, it, it itself may become a vice as people become used to getting 80% of their income without having to go out and work for it. And I accept that it's it's arguably um, a, 
I'm going to say necessary evil. I don't think it is necessary. I don't think they needed to lock down. But because the government deliberately locked down the economy in the way it did, it forced people into a position where they had no other choice but to say, you've shut me down. You've therefore got to take responsibility for paying my bills and keeping me and my family alive. And so I, I, I get the connection between the two. But my argument isn't therefore more furlough. My argument is therefore stop lockdown, um, because I think that in itself becomes a vice. And um, it's it's one of those things I was talking about earlier where the consequences we have yet to see. And I don't just mean the, the financial ones for national finances. I mean, on an individual basis, the human cost of that is going to be huge. Mm. Well, as always, it's a great pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining me, Dan. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure. Hope to do it again.